Cambridge Muslim College, training the next generation of Muslim thinkers. Bismillah, alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah, wa alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala. Rabbi yassir wa a'in ya kareem, wa iftah bil haqqi innaka al-fattahu al-alim. Very grateful for uh, those kind words and to uh, the staff and leadership of this uh, amazing and beautiful uh, masjid. I've experienced nothing but uh, hospitality since I arrived in this wonderful country. And it's been good to see examples in the Muslim community of something that I think it is time for the entire ummah to start striving for, which is the pursuit of excellence. For too long, I think, in the ummah, we have been content to be plodders, to be behind the curve, to be followers of others, to get things kind of right in a muddled and mediocre way. The projects which uh, you've just heard described to you indicate what I think is the new horizon for Islam in the Western world and inshallah elsewhere, which is people, in Cambridge we have a highly educated Muslim community, highly successful, highly committed, who wish Islam to be ahead of the curve, who wish Islam to be a symbol of excellence, a symbol of compassion, a symbol of efficiency, and a symbol of punctuality. So the eco-mosque, which has just been described, will, inshallah, be the Western world's most uh, morally and aesthetically impressive structure with its state-of-the-art technologies, its craftsmanship, its facilities for uh, incorporating women in worship, its facilities for education, uh, it will be definitely one of a kind. It's an example of what you can achieve when you have a Muslim community of people who are forward-looking and prepared to break some of the older and stodgier habits of the more narrow-minded amongst our scholars and uh, traditional institutions. The other institution I mentioned is the Cambridge Muslim College, which also tries to be an institution of excellence. We use the resources of what is probably the world's best university, the University of Cambridge, at the highest level, at a concentrated level, in order to produce a small elite of new Muslim thinkers and leaders who, armed with the best of modern information, and perspectives, but fully committed to their Islamic roots and to their communities, can go out not just to mosques and universities in England, but around the world, in order to transform the discourse and to lead people into a new type of ummah, which is an ummah of excellence. And this is what we find in the Sunnah of the Chosen One, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, where we where we see him saying things like Inna Allah katabal ihsana ala kulli shay'. Allah has prescribed excellence on all things. And where he says, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, إِنَّ اللَّهَ يُحِبُّ إِذَا عَمِلَ أَحَدُكُمْ عَمَلًا أَنْ يُتْقِنَ Allah loves it if when you do something, you do it excellently, with itqan, with perfection. And this was always the way of Islamic civilization historically. We need to be people of uh, ambition, people who wish to serve humanity, and Almighty God in the most excellent way and to be an exemplary community rather than a community of laggards. And so this is what we're trying to build in our leadership program in Cambridge. And alhamdulillah, the young people are living up to uh, the promise and to the uh, expectations that the religion has of them. 
We also try to move beyond the kind of stupid narrow-mindedness and the extremism that sometimes characterizes much of the Ummah. The Holy Prophet himself says in the hadith narrated by Imam Muslim, May the fanatics perish. The perfect kind of curse of those who wish to turn Islam into a symbol of narrow-mindedness, of fixity, of uh, unimaginative imposition of uh, obsolete norms on Bani Adam. So we seek authenticity, but at the same time, true authenticity in that we reject any kind of narrow-mindedness or bigotry. So our new mosque will be open to a variety of communities. So our leaders are learning about other religions as well as the religion of Islam. We take them to the Vatican. We take them uh, to a range of places to open the windows into their minds so that their khutbahs and their leadership can, inshallah, be relevant and shining and authentic in the best way. So that is really what we're trying to do. And I want to approach uh, the subject of my little talk this evening in the same kind of spirit. Because when we look at the history of Islamic civilization, we do see a civilization which is a story of achievement. What more impressive achievement in history then for the Muslims, who began as a small group of browbeaten and oppressed monotheists in a small, dusty Arabian town, within 50 years, certainly within 100 years, to create the largest and the greatest and the most populous civilization the world has ever seen. What is it about that message that produced such excellence, such professionalism, such structures, financial structures, mercantile structures, as well as intellectual and institutional and educational structures, how did they do that? This golden age that we read about, the age of Sinbad the sailor, medieval Muslim trade outshone any other form of trade in the world. This is the world of the Silk Road. This is the world of the Golden Web. This is the world where you could have a financial document that was drawn up in Cairo and have it honored in Shanghai by a Muslim banker, a brilliant global mercantile civilization unusual for a religion to accompany that, to accomplish that. So often you think of religions generally as encouraging just a preoccupation with the life of the soul and the life to come. But the Holy Prophet wasallam, how does he begin? He begins as a merchant, a sadiq al-amin, the truthful and the trusted merchant. So that his house, according to the books of the seerah, becomes the place where you can leave your valuables, a kind of safe deposit uh, facility in the city of Mecca. This is an age before uh, combination locks. This is an age before uh, security cameras, an age before banks. In Mecca, if you were buying and selling and you had goods or money that you wished to keep in a safe place, you would leave it in the house of Al-Amin, alayhi salam. He was part of the commercial life of his community, and I find this particularly inspirational. And we remember how he was earning a, liver, a living and how his first uh, wife, Khadija al-Kubra, radiallahu anha, was his employer. I don't know of any other founder of world religion who is in business, who is employed by a woman, who is uh, a merchant. Very remarkable. And as a result, from that time to this day, the mercantile calling has been regarded as an honorable context for the exploration of a quite scrupulous religiosity. It's not about dunya and deen in opposite corners of one's life, and serving one represents concessions in the other, 
Instead, Islamic civilization, generation after generation after generation, has produced brilliant mercantile personalities and institutions and trading routes uh, that have transformed the economy of the world. Now, we know that this comes about through uh, a certain uh, subtlety in the approach to wealth. So perhaps this should be the first thing we reflect on when we use the slightly but not inappropriately or incongruously modern category of business ethics to look at how Muslims traditionally saw how you get to heaven through rather than despite running a business. So some of the Sahaba, radiallahu anhum, were really poor really poor and were rich and then became poor like Abu Bakr al-Siddiq basically all of his wealth went in supporting uh, the poor the orphans the muhajireen the widows this was his calling this was his nature and he was loved as a result Sayyidina Uthman his title in Islam is Al-Ghani that's another interesting thing about Islam. You can go to great mosques in Istanbul and you see the four names of the, the Khulafa Rashidun, Abu Bakr al-Siddiq, Omar al-Farouq, Uthman al-Ghani. Al-Ghani, strange, but there he is. And we honor him for that. Why? Because of the saying of the Holy Prophet wasallam. When some came to him, poor people came to him complaining. And they said, Ya Rasulullah, ذهب أهل الدثور بالأجور يصلون كما نصلي ويتصدقون ولا نتصدق They said, O oh, Messenger of Allah the rich folks have got all the great rewards because they pray as we pray and they give sadaqa and we're not able فقال المصطفى عليه الصلاة والسلام ذلك فضل الله يؤتيه من يشاء That's Allah's grace, he gives it to whom he will None of this in our subtle religion which says really what counts is the quality of your heart means that any particular economic group has any necessary merit. And generally, we believe that soft-heartedness attaches primarily to the fuqara. And the Holy Prophet, was himself one who made the choice to live with the poor. But there is this possibility that Uthman and so many of the other of the Sahaba and the early Muslims represent, which is part of the, the shumuliya, the comprehensiveness of Islam. There's many points in society from which one can face the Qibla and many contexts in which one can seek salvation. And this, again, is part of the excellence, the itqan of our civilization. And was one reason why it was possible for this civilization to be focused absolutely on Almighty God and for mosques to be built from east to west so quickly, including some of the most magnificent structures in the history of architecture but at the same time we have this wonderful economic system and this structure of trade which really defined the medieval world and dominated global trade until the 15th and the 16th century when the trade routes were fundamentally dislocated by Columbus, the crossing of the Atlantic the silver route from uh, the new world and uh, the map of the world and commerce started to look very very different Portuguese, the Dutch and others starting to circumvent the Islamic world and uh, the traditional sources of prosperity in our communities which have been managed so brilliantly and so well for so long started to fall into disuse. So we have this honorable tradition, this tradition of mercantile piety which is the basis for the 
understanding of business ethics in Islam. And my favorite book in this, and there have been many classical sources in Islamic civilization that talk about, but they usually speak in terms of adab al-kasb, or sometimes adab al-kasb wal-ma'isha. Hundreds of books on this. The adab, the courtesies of gaining a living. Kasb means to acquire. And of ma'isha, of, uh, of, of life itself, and of engaging with others. These two things are often treated together. And Imam al-Ghazali uh, has a very remarkable book in his Ihya'ul-Maddin, where he talks about Kasp, uh, and I think it's of all of the works of our civilization, the one that uh, speaks to me most and that has stood the test of time. One can speak abundantly about the underlying principles of our economic vision, which, of course, with the zakat system, ensure that very long-term perpetuations of capital, if it's justly declared, become difficult. One reason why the feudal system never developed in the Muslim world the way it did in the West is that capital tended to get eaten away by the zakat, and when you died, it was distributed not to your elder son, as in England and uh, the European world, but to a range of successors. So accumulated capital was always broken up with each generation and was helped to, 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 to redistribute. So the feudal system... We never really had it in the world of Islam. And you see people rising to positions of economic eminence and, and descending quite rapidly as well with the usual fortunes of the world, politics and, and, and trade. That's a big difference. And the inheritance laws and the zakat laws made that fundamental distinction between medieval Islam and medieval Christendom uh, a possibility. And there's other things that experts in Sharia will be able to tell you about, a particular tax on uh, mineral wealth, certain ways in which land taxes can be levied, fairly light compared to a lot of taxes that we have to put up with in, in Europe nowadays, but still they were there. And the purpose of it was always very clear to ensure the circulation of wealth. Remember some of the earliest and firmest passages to be revealed in the Holy Quran was against the plutocrats of Mecca because they didn't share with the poor. Some of the earliest things that it says, even before it talks about prayer and other things, we know this verse, rivalry in worldly increase has distracted you until you go to your graves. <coughs> and the opponents of the Blessed Prophet وسلم, were merchants of the wrong kind. Those whose wealth had hardened their hearts and who were kicking around their slaves and persecuting the early Muslims and maltreating the orphans and hoarding their wealth. <coughs> so this is clearly an important principle in the Quranic revelation, one of the first things that had to be stated. And we find that this vision of there being necessary <coughs> a circulation of wealth and a real concern for the poor generated in classical Islamic civilization a much smaller polarization between the super-rich and the super-poor than you find in, uh, say, the modern United States, the land of opportunity. In fact, there aren't as many opportunities as people think to get up the ladder uh, and with the new uh, tax regime in the United States, probably the polarization will continue. It's one of the scandals of the modern world. 
and perhaps one of the Achilles heels of the modern world. Interesting study done recently at the University of Maryland in America, looking at the history of civilizations and their rise and fall, said that there's two factors that are likely to precipitate uh, the collapse of modern civilization. The first is the environmental crisis. We may run out of oxygen. And the second is the growing disparity between the super-rich and the poor, which is going to create uh, social unease and unrest uh, increasingly in an ever-increasing number of countries. A very interesting uh, piece of research, actually done by an Iranian Muslim researcher, Safa Mosharri'i. You can look it up on the Internet. So two things that can bring about the collapse of a civilization. In the context of the Islamic world, that didn't happen because you have these mechanisms of sadaqah, of zakat, of uh, other forms of charitable giving, the waqf institution that recycled and recycled and recycled. And I was reading a paper recently about the waqf institutions in Istanbul before they were taken over and destroyed by the Republican uh, Turkish nationalists in the 1920s. A third of the land in Istanbul was owned by awqaf. The function of the awqaf was essentially charitable. So you have a kind of social services provided, but not by the state, but by the generosity of individual people, usually people who are living something as as wasiya in their wills for providing a soup kitchen or a public water fountain or a little hospital or whatever it might be. So our civilization has an excellent record of delivering, but without endless state intervention. The beauty of the Islamic model is that the state actually doesn't do very much. Uh, but the masses, because of their religious commitment, do a lot. Now, Imam Ghazali in this book says the first principle to remember here is that you are remembered. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is watching you. Never do we say a word but that there is one who is uh, vigorous and vehement scrutinizing us at all times. Allah is the raqib. And that's the basic ethical principle of Islamic business ethics. The businessman can't conceal anything from his creator. To the extent that he's Muslim, he knows that all of those accounts in Panama, Marak Fonseca, you've read all of the news, all of the wealthy, especially in the United States and Europe, salting away their wealth in various shell companies and smoke and mirror ways of of avoiding taxation. That's a secular strategy, but you can't hide from the unblinking eye of the Almighty. And the zakat is an obligation. And you have a moral obligation if you're a citizen of a nation state to pay your taxes in, in the nation state. And to avoid that is to play games with God the smart believer, the mukhlis, when he thinks about it, isn't going to want to do that. So this is the basic principle and the divine name that applies is Ar-Raqib. Because the Holy Prophet, alayhi salatu who grew up and existed in a world where he knew very well merchants and their tricks and the temptations and the games that they play and the deceit of which they are capable, the flip side, the darker side of something that has its positive side of circulating wealth and bringing products and wealth to the world, that he knew the great failing was deceit and lying. So he says, alayhi salatu in a hadith, 
لكل شيء آفة وآفة التجارة الكذب Everything has its Achilles heel, its weak point, its hazardous area. And the weak point of business is telling lies. Ouch. I know the temptation myself. If I'm trying to sell something on eBay or whatever it might be, am I going to list everything about whatever it is that I'm selling frankly and honestly? And there's all kinds of things in Imam al-Ghazali's book, this issue of rabban, as they call it, which is a kind of deceitful presentation of the goods as that which they are not, all comes under this prophetic anger against deceiving people. Despite modern regulatory frameworks, and in England we have the Serious Fraud Office, and we have the Department of Trade, and millions and millions and millions of tax inspectors, I've got no idea how many they are, but they're putting us all under the microscope, the believer accepts that, but also, as a man or woman of honor, wants to be frank with his customers, wants to do things honorably. Because the image of the traditional merchant, the tajir, which is an honorable description in Muslim civilization, the image of that person is that he is following al-amin, the trustworthy one. Muslims converted the world not really through missionaries and trained people the way the Christians did it, but largely through merchants. They went to places like Indonesia, they went to China, they went to East Africa to trade, to buy and sell stuff, but they were so magnificent and so respected and so honest that people wanted to know more. What was it that had made them into these sober, restrained, dignified people rather than hustlers? What is it about the Muslim merchant that is so impressive? And he can be a brilliant trader. Islamic history is full of such people, but a person of dignity, of honor, because he knows that Allah is raqib. He is being watched. He can't hide anything. And this has always been uh, something of which our civilization has been proud. So this category of kadib, of deceiving the customer, really occupies most of Imam al-Ghazali's book on business ethics. And some of the things might seem obsolete, but in fact, when you think about them, they're not really. So he talks about rikban, for instance. Naha Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam rikban. He forbade the practice of overcharging strangers. You have to imagine the traditional world. There's no internet there's no uh, standard currency system, there's no banking system. You travel for days to another city and you buy and sell things, you're not sure what the prices are. The temptation for the merchant in the bazaar is to up the prices because he can see that you don't know. The Holy Prophet specifically forbade this. There's a hadith in Bukhari and Muslim in which he does not allow you to do this. I recently examined a PhD thesis which was about guilds in Saudi who would ensure that everybody behaved in an honorable way and did not bring that profession into disrepute. So in Sarajevo, 300 years ago, if you were in town and you were from some little village in the mountains and you were overcharged something by somebody who was taking advantage of you and the head of the guild came to hear about it, there would be a whole ceremony. The Ottomans love ceremony. But rather depressing if you were a merchant because it meant that the guild master, the Yol Atasu, would come in his splendid robes with his assistants 
and he would open the door of your shop and he would take a green silk square embroidered with a verse of the Holy Quran and place it over the goods that you were selling and then he would leave and you had to sit there with your door open and you wouldn't be allowed to sell anything until the Yol Atas had decided that you'd learnt your lesson and you'd come back and remove and fold up the cloth and recite some Quran and you could get back to business it's not government not the tax man, not anything, but this is how life was in the bizarre culture of classical Islamic civilization. Really dishonorable against what they called futuwa, which I was also talking about the other, way, other day. Unchivalrous to exploit your customer. Another hadith. It's in Tirmidhi. The Holy Prophet وسلم, when he went to uh, a, uh, somebody in the market, said, Zin the arjih. And this has become a kind of proverb in the bazaars to this day. Weigh it and put in a little extra. It's like the idea of the baker's dozen. I don't know if that means anything in South Africa, but in England, you'd buy a dozen loaves of bread and the baker would add another loaf just in case the loaves turned out to be a little bit small that you hadn't been shortchanged. So a baker's dozen is 13. And that's exactly what the sunnah practice is. If you're weighing out the wheats or the coins or the gold or whatever it is, into the scales, make sure that the scales don't exactly balance, but they go clunk on the customer's side. Hmm? And throw in something extra just to make sure you hear that clunk. And that is part of the adab of the tajir, to make sure that you're not guilty of shortchanging your customer. Now that's a kind of medieval image, how many of us actually go into shops and have things weighed up unless we're selling your wife's jewelry or something. Certain emergencies, maybe at the pawnbroker, but basically that doesn't happen but the principle is certainly the same make sure that they get exactly what they are paying for and it's the same with the khazazin medieval Islam was a civilization that produced a lot of fabrics and silk and the khazaz according to the gills had to measure out somebody might say I want a bolt of silk that's say 20 meters long measure it, measure it and a little bit extra at the end and this was kind of normal everybody did it so you have this, but you also have hadiths in which the Holy Prophet ﷺ forbids people from concealing the faults of their goods. So there's a hadith in which the Holy Prophet ﷺ He walked past a man in the market who was selling some food, probably corn, and he liked it. فَأَدْخَلَ فِيهِ yada. So he put his hand inside it and deep down he found it was damp which is a disaster, damp corn it's going to rot, it's probably already started to ferment He said, why is it wet? And the man said Well, it was raining And the Holy Prophet said why didn't you then, if it, the rain was falling on it, how come it's moist underneath? Why didn't you put it on top of the food? And then he says the famous words, Man minna. Whoever cheats us is not one of us. And that's a, a, a quite drastic thing. It doesn't mean you're kafir. But if you cheat other people in the marketplace by selling them something and there's stone in the rice or it's actually poor quality and you're claiming that it's high quality all of these are the tricks of so many trades if you do that deliberately and knowingly 
the Holy Prophet has said something about you that is kind of dark and alarming. Whoever cheats us is not one of us. Many of us can think of times in which this has happened. And nowadays, unfortunately, if you buy things in the market, especially touristy areas in the Arab world, the miracle is if you don't get cheated or riding a taxi. Our cultures have often become quite degenerate and we do take advantage and the old dignity has been lost, which is such a shame, such a tragedy. But the Islamic principle is clear. Man ghashana falisa minna. Whoever cheats us is not one of us. And the Holy Prophet also forbade us to describe the product in a way that was misleading. And there's even discussions in Sharia as to whether a contract on that basis can be the subject of its revocation. So if you go home and you find that the car you've just been sold, actually the speedometer has been adjusted and it's done 100,000 miles and not 10,000 miles, and it's obvious you've been done, uh, in many cases the Sharia will allow you to abrogate that contract of sale and take it back if you have documentation. So the Holy Prophet forbade people to sell things according to a description which is not accurate. And there's a long section in the Ihya which sometimes is a bit mind-boggling because it evokes a time of scrupulousness that is almost unimaginable today. The conversion of Jarir bin Abdullah is one of the, the great Sahaba. He takes his shahada uh, and then he turns away the Holy Prophet brings him back not just the shahada young man uh, he uh, tells him because Jarir is a man who is engaged in business uh, never to misdescribe his goods we don't know why exactly this was his instruction to him but from that time on Jarir became famous in the marketplace of Medina because when he went to buy from him, he would say, well, this is actually not very good. And really, this kind of, all, there might be all kinds of problems with this thing. فَشَكَعْ إِلَيْهِ رَجُلُ If you continue like this in your shop, you'll never sell anything. But he said, أَمْرٌ بَايَعْتُ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ عَلَيْهِ مَا تَرَكْتُهُ أَبَدًا something on the basis of which I gave my bay'ah to the Holy Prophet وسلم, I will never leave off now you also find and Imam al-Ghazali talks about this and this is part of the spirituality of the honorable merchant that he says that acquiring wealth that benefits you is a, a, an almost arcane matter it's not just about totting up figures, but money does odd things. And there's baraka fil mal, very Islamic kind of conception. That if you follow these scrupulous principles when running your business, when running your shop, when driving your taxi, when filling out your tax return, whatever it may be, that the money that does come your way will become blessed. And all kinds of wonderful things will happen to you through that mal. Whereas other people may find they have a mountain of money, but somehow it turns to ashes, no, no good comes of it. This is a subtle thing, hard to imagine unless you've actually experienced it. But it's a very important part of the, the, Islamic, the Islamic way. So all of these, and I guess advertising, 
and dishonest advertising campaigns would come under this heading of misdescribing goods. And sometimes advertising can be really very esoteric and strange, particularly if it's products that are really damaging, like tobacco. So the tobacco advertisement, you see the pack of Rothmans, and then you see the cowboy on his horse, and somehow seeing the cowboy on his horse is meant to make you rush out and buy a packet of Rothmans. It's a very odd kind of psychology, but they must have found that it works, or they wouldn't be spending millions and millions and millions on advertising. That, that also is regarded as problematic. It's straightforwardness. It's perfectly legitimate to make a profit, but be straightforward and make sure that you can go to bed relaxed as an honorable man in the evening, even if you haven't quite cut the profit that, that you hoped for. And other things, which are not really sharia-related, but are to do with the adab and the ihsan of buying and selling. Uh, the Holy Prophet وسلم, says in another hadith, Rahimallahu imru'an sahla al-shira' sahla al-bayah. May Allah have mercy on a man who is easy as he sells and easy as he buys. And Imam al-Ghazali says this has many meanings. It has something to do with adab and not really grinding somebody who's needy into the dust because you're in a position of, of, uh, of kind of holding him to ransom. That you're an easy guy to do business with. That you make allowances. That you don't push for the final cent. And this is one of the meanings of it. But it also means, and this is more subtle, and particularly in the old bazaar culture was important, that you differentiate in your transaction between rich and poor. That if a poor person comes to you, you can do something like, for instance, saying, well, you can pay me later, with the intention of never asking that person for repayment. This is one of the traditional fada'il of Muslim culture, that so as not to humiliate somebody by saying this is just a gift to preserve their honor they say you can pay me later but the understanding is that it's very unlikely that person will ever pay it back this is common in traditional Islamic ethics and it's part of what the Holy Prophet is getting at when he speaks of sahl al-shira sahl al-bayr so don't force things in a kind of unreasonable and greedy and discourteous way and again you'll find that barakah will ensue and in one narration of this hadith, it goes on to say, Sahlul Qadah, Sahlul Iqtidah, which means that when the believer repays his loans, he does so easily. He doesn't endlessly make excuses and try and postpone it, and I can do a little bit with the money and pay it back next year instead of this year. And the games that often happen in the commercial world, uh, okay, it's the payment within 28 days. But let me see if I can get three months because I can invest it in this product and get a little bit of money in the interim. That's uh, not uh, the Islamic ethic. That if you owe something, sahl al-qadat means that you're an easy guy to get your debt back from because it's a matter of honor that you repay, you repay your debt. And sahl al-iqtidat means that when you're dunning somebody, you're asking for a loan to be repaid, you make it really easy for them. You give them as long as it takes. In some cases, you may just write it off. Mm. And this is, again, a, a Qur'anic virtue. If somebody is in difficult circumstances, 
so they owe you their rent for instance and you're banging on the door and saying I have the legal right to chuck you out the Quran is saying if the person is in difficulty then give them a period of time until things become easier for them and this is also part of the merchant world because debt, owing, borrowing is part of the commercial existence so just to, to, to wrap it up these are the insights that the Imam is sending to us down the corridor of time from Central Asia nine centuries ago but what we find is that most of these things actually still apply despite the inconceivable and possibly even unstable and dangerous complexity of the world economic and financial systems we can recognize that there are certain things that are constant but the underlying principle is Islam really likes the recycling of wealth from the rich to the poor but Islam also honors the one who is wealthy as part of that process and there is a pious dignity in the mercantile calling which is a very high dignity and is part of the prophetic dignity itself and that scrupulousness is going to make you uh, experience the pleasure of that dignity an honorable man so that the money that is passed on to one's descendants is inshallah 100% halal and one is remembered as somebody who is decent to his customers who was compassionate to debtors who helped and supported employees who was just a decent person in the business realm and I suspect it's that as well as the genius of the sharia itself that made Islam such a brilliant mercantile civilization the world's greatest cities were in the world of Islam because the economy worked Baghdad with a million people Qurtuba with a million people at a time when London had maybe 40,000 because the system was run on the basis of itqan it was efficient it was well thought out but also because the poor weren't starving to death and there were these facilities for the recycling of wealth but at the same time there was public respect for the decent merchant remember the Rasul وسلم, is in this last hadith that I gave you actually praying for the person who is in this situation of buying and selling and borrowing and lending Rahimallah, he says may Allah have mercy on that person so we need to get this into our minds because very often especially in the modern strange uh, culture we tend to assume that uh, this is a very dunya kind of activity but in fact Islamic civilization I suspect better than any other pre-modern civilization has created a context in which one can be absolutely 100% right with the Almighty and finding salvation through these akhlaq and these adab of the righteous merchant and that so brilliant was this civilization that so much barakah flowed from the wealth of uh, the people who conformed to these stringent but beautiful and ethical rules that we created a civilization that was flourishing and sustainable for hundreds of years so that's just some of the things that I have found in Imam al-Ghazali's uh, book on business ethics Adab al-Kasb the courtesies of earning a living I'd recommend that you all um, take a look at that book and you can do so because online Sheikh Siraj Hendricks of Cape Town of the Zawiya Mosque has done uh, a video class on this very book of the Ihya Ulam al-Din it's well worth watching so may Allah inshallah bless us all 
in our buying and our selling. Make us all people of honor and mercy. And make us all remember that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is ala kulli shay'in raqib, is the one who scrutinizes and observes all things. May Allah bless you, bring you together, bless those who are in this congregation, bless your families, bless your country, inshallah, and bring us together uh, as Bani Adam in love, compassion, and unity. Barakallahu fikum, wal afu minkum, wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Cambridge Muslim College, training the next generation of Muslim thinkers.